Thank you guys so much for chugging right along. Let's see it. We're in. We're into. Uh, it's March. Wow. So we have two meetings in March. We have two meetings in April, and then we've got what? Just maybe two more in May. I think that's right. Six meetings left, and uh, we're in the home stretch here. And this morning is the last morning that we will. Uh, focus our study time on discipline one, on the heart. Um, I like to, at this time of the year, come back to discipline one and hit it one more time really hard um, from another angle and, and uh, just refresh our minds. Um, if, if you get anything out of BUILD this year or you know for the rest of your life, I, w- I would hope it would just be that you would be very concerned, uh, recognize that you cannot negotiate away um, taking responsibility for the condition of your heart before God. Um, and therefore, you must, and the only way to uh, responsibly take uh, care of your heart is through the Word of God. Um, you can't bring your heart before anything else. You can't um, shepherd it with anything else. Because God made his word uh, to come into contact with the human heart. So that's what we're going to really focus on again this morning. So let's um, look on the back of your notebooks and uh, run back through the disciplines one more time and focus on that. So a man of God is one who is going to be concerned for his heart. He's going to um, drag it before God's word. On a consistent basis, he's gonna. Even when he doesn't feel like it, even when he wakes up and he realizes that it's been two days since he's been in God's Word, um, or he's been just very busy and he feels very superficial towards God, um, he. And even though he's going to hear things in his head like, you know, you, you'd just be a hypocrite right now if you came before God in His Word. Um, you need to become a kind of man that says, <clears throat> if it were up to me today, I would figure out a way to unsave myself. My heart is always going to go towards coldness when I do nothing. And so regardless of how I feel, I know that the right thing for me to do is to come back to the source of heat for my heart, and I'm going to come to God's word. And I'm going to open it up and I'm going to just humbly drag the ugliness of what maybe I have become over the last couple days or even the last week. And I'm going to expose it to God in His Word. I'm just going to do that. I'm going to humble myself before God. And I'm going to come and I'm going to let Him speak to my heart with His Word. Um, I think a man who does that is a man who actually is, is a pretty mature man spiritually. I think spiritual maturity is, is not so much measured by that you have 365 quiet times. I, I hope you will uh, in a year minimum. Um, but I think spiritual maturity is, is measured by a guy who knows that even when I don't feel like it, I, 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 I need to come to God's word and I will because um, what else does my heart have? 
What else can I give my heart? What else can I do? Where else could I go? There's no other place for me to go. And um, so I think, um, you know, that that's a, a good sign of, of spiritual growth in your life is when you are willing to bring your heart before God even when you don't feel like it or feel unworthy. Congratulations, you feel unworthy. Join the club of the rest of the unworthy sinners all across the world throughout every age who followed Jesus Christ. Um, you, you've met the prerequisite. Good. Um, when you've been that kind of a man, you also then want to step into your home, of course, and you want to... Uh, Bring uh, an impact on the people that you live with. It, it's 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 a pretty important place. That's the place where many hours of the day, the rest of the hours of the day of your life, you're going to be spending, and your life is going to be rubbing up against other people who live there, a wife, children, roommates, and um, to think that uh, that's really not a place that you should focus would be, I think, um, misdirected thinking, misguided thinking. Um, and, and if you are not yet married and playing leapfrog over your, your home there, what, what confidence do you have that once you do get married, you won't keep doing that? It's a great time to practice with uh, those knuckleheaded roommates you have and uh, who live with you, the other knucklehead in the home, and um, care for one another. Um, those of you who are still young and you're at home and under your parents, what a great opportunity for you young men to now turn the corner and instead of dad doing all of the shepherding, um, send your dad into cardiac arrest and say, dad, what can I do to um, help bear the burden spiritually in this home and care for other people? How can I do that? And um, it's a good thing for you to do. You be that kind of a man where you're working to impact others with the gospel in your home and what you're going to find is um, when you step into people's lives outside of your home and in the church or um, outside of the church, you're going to find um, that God has a lot of uh, t- to accomplish through you. You're going to find a uh, um, you're going to find people as they're interacting with you and they, they actually come into your home that they're going to see that you have integrity, that you're the same man outside your home as you are inside your home. And that's only going to strengthen. Um, oh, wait a minute. If you're going to go help them, and then you bring back a goodie from the, from the lady. Was that, your, was that your payment? That was my payment. What, what happened to her? Um, apparently the phone line went down, and that's how the alarm communicates. And somehow it got reset. So. Did the police come at all? Or? No. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They said they were. Oh, they're a charger. Yeah. Okay. Great. All right. Third discipline then, or we already talked about it. You step out into the home, outside of the home and, and you're ready to care for people. Uh, the, the fourth discipline that we want to have you uh, uh, work on as men in the church is what we talked about the last two times we were together on, on deacons, where we want to um, explain more clearly what deacon leadership is and what the qualifications are for deacons in 1 Timothy 3. And we want to set before you prayerfully the, the qualifications so that you would seek God's face in prayer about those qualifications, asking him to form those qualifications in your own life. Um, after that, we're working on discipline five, which is the hermeneutic. 
Uh, our last three times together this year are going to be on that hermeneutic. The word hermeneutic just means rules for interpreting, uh, rules of interpretation. Um, we're going to talk about the ways that the elders of this church think that the Bible should be interpreted. And what I really want to, you're going to see this uh, in the series in Genesis coming up. Um, there's going to be some, um, well, all of the, the messages, but some in particular are really going to demonstrate and practice uh, be, being a, uh, uh, I'm losing my words this morning. It's going to be an, uh, an example set before you of how to view your Bible. So often what happens is because we recognize that there is later revelation after the Old Testament and the New Testament fills out many things and brings even new revelation that the Old Testament could not see coming, <clears throat> it's easy to take the New Testament truth and override it into the Old Testament text and make the Old Testament text actually say more than it originally was intended by the the human author and the divine author to say. And we don't want to do that. You don't want to take God's words and make earlier words mean more than what he intended them to mean. Um, now, the danger comes that if you say only what the Old Testament text says in a, in a Bible study lesson, uh, in a devotion with your family, in a sermon to a church, if you only say what is there and stop in your sermon and don't give any acknowledgement in your sermon or in your lesson to further revelation that has come in the Bible, well, then you're, you're not going to be helping Christians like you should. You have to read forward. You have to read your Bible all the way through. Um, so the danger is in letting an Old Testament text stand and say only what it says, that you would not get to other revelation that has come. That would not be good. You want to get to other revelation that does come. But the way that you hold it all together is not by making the, old, the New Testament's meaning be exactly what the Old Testament's meaning is. And so you're going to watch as we do this. We're going to do this in um, um, Genesis 2 when we get to um, the seventh day and, and God's rest. We're going to walk through the Bible on, on what rest is. And we'll do that in our very last um, class here. That's what the, the third hermeneutic class will be here. Um, we're going to do that on the image of God in Genesis 1. Um, Smed's going to do that on Genesis 3 with the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Fascinating. Wait, to, oh Man, I can't wait um, for that stuff. This is going to be really good. Um, I'm just going to trace those things forward, and uh, I, I hope it will be encourage, encouraging to you. Um, listen, obviously, in those messages. Listen for the content of what is being said. But if you can also have an ear and an eye on what is actually happening as it's being taught, that will help you see and understand the, the, the way um, we want to encourage you to interpret Scripture. So um, all that being said, that's Discipline 5. The last discipline is this church, is uh, church's vision and um, uh, purpose. Vision, it's a biblical vision, it's a Trinitarian vision. We want to set our eyes on the, the glory of God um, in the cross of his son uh, and the changed life that the spirit brings and that thrusts us forward into a gospel purpose, which means that we need to be very concerned to draw in men and women, build up men and women and send them out into the world. 
Um, and that's what we're trying to focus on here at Grace Bible Church. So, with that being said, let's um, let's turn to uh, our study for this morning on the heart. Um, you guys have any questions or comments on that? Yes, Tom. I uh, after the the first yes. Not having um, really, you know, dug into that too deeply, I, I've got a, a superficial idea of what I think he's doing there. So I'll offer that and then put my hand over my mouth. Um, I think I think what you've seen going on in Job as you read is Job's pretty confident that he knows. He's pretty confident of the position that he's taking. He's taken a, a piece of truth of the truth that he is a righteous man and um, he has not sinned to cause in such a way that would cause this kind of um, discipline or whatever judgment from God and that's true Um, he did not sin um, it says in the early chapters but as you go through Job he continues to he, he seems to be emboldened in his position to a to an extent that finally when the younger man, Elihu, speaks, which as I was reading it this past week, it made me think of our last conversation that we had together um, where a young man waited for the older and the wiser to speak. and um, He was very respectful. He was. He understood. But he said, you did not help him at all. And it begins to become clear there that Job is has overstepped the bounds some point in his confidence about what he's doing. I think he feels like he, at that man, at that point, I think it would be maybe safe to say that he thinks he's the man. Who's going to answer me? And then God comes in a way and draws near in a way that he hadn't in all of that. And I think God is kind of calling his blood. You know, be the man. Dress up. Let's go. Um, and it's a way of, of uh, helping Job realize that he needs to humble himself. I, th- I think it might be something like that going on. I, d- I don't know. I, I could be wrong, but I'd, I'd have to look more. But uh, Solomon said, or D- was it David said the same thing to Solomon? 
be the man, act like a man. And, and Paul says the same thing to the Corinthians, act like men. Um, it's a way of saying, and those are probably different scenarios of, of saying, it's time to grow up spiritually. He's, he's kind of, he, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good observation. Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah. Well, let's, um, let's pray. And then let's jump into our, our study this morning of the heart. you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again this morning for an opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. And Lord, I'm especially thankful this morning for what um, your word is going to show us in the different passages that we look at. Um, Father, we, as we run through the pages of Scripture, we see some very troubling truths there concerning our hearts. Thank you for revealing those um, so that we would know that there is something troublesome going on in our hearts. How, otherwise, how would we know? We are deceived in our hearts and we would convince ourselves, I, I know I lived this way for nearly 20 years where I thought I was okay. There's nothing troubling about my heart. But you reveal in your word that there are some very troubling truths about the heart that we need to grasp. And so, Lord, we want to refresh our memory and our hearts again this morning on these troubling truths. But thankfully, your Bible also then offers some comforting truths concerning the heart of man And Lord, we want to bask in those this morning. We want to find those to be exactly what you intend them to be. We want to find them to be encouraging, uplifting, um, steadying. They'll they'll stabilize us. Um, So God, would you please, I don't know where each of these men are at this morning, but I know that um, oftentimes we can feel very... um, very much like we wonder if we should keep pressing on in uh, trying to be faithful to you. We can feel very weak. We can lose hope. And Father, if you might do anything with your word this morning, I pray that you would lift up these men with the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would grab a hold of them at the heart and lift them up. So please, God, um, help us. Meet with us, draw near to us as we draw near to you through your word, and um, have your way in us and strengthen us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. What we are going to do is uh, tackle troubling truths from my heart. I've got three of them here for you. Um, by the way, I taught these to um, student ministries. What was that? Two times times what I did. Probably yeah, what, back in December or January. January. Um, so I just was so encouraged by it. I, I've rearranged it a little bit from there. But um, let's talk about number one. What keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. And let's go to Ephesians 4. So the blank you want to fill in there is hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17, Paul says, he's wanting to exhort 
um, the believers in Ephesus and around the area of Ephesus, he's ready to talk to them about the way to live. Uh, in chapter 4, he really makes a, a swing towards that in verse 1 to talk about walk in a manner worthy of the calling. That's another way of just saying live in a manner that is worthy of the calling that God has placed on you. Verse 17, he revisits that again. And he says, I affirm together with the Lord that you walk. Now, this time he's going to state it negatively. You can't walk like the Gentiles walk. You can't live like the unsaved live. Well, how do they live? Well, verse 17, they live in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. Um, and we want to focus in on verse 18 on um, because of the hardness of their heart. Um, this describes, that phrase there, that clause, because of the hardness of their heart, it describes the one right in front of it. Okay, so you see the, the, the phrase right in front of it? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of heart describes that. It describes why believers, or unbelievers, I should say, have a deeply ingrained ignorance. It tells you why there is a deeply ingrained ignorance. And this idea of ignorance here, it's not superficial ignorance. It's not, oops, I accidentally became ignorant. I didn't realize, I didn't mean to. I just kind of stumbled into this ignorance. Uh, it's not a surprising ignorance. It's not an ignorance that you could say, man, I didn't see that one coming. You can't be that way about this ignorance. Um, this is rather a planned ignorance by the sinner. It is a purposeful ignorance. It is willful ignorance. It's not wanting to know God. It's not wanting to know God's will. It's like I don't want to see him. I don't want to look at him. I refuse to look at him. I'm not going to gaze upon him and what he wants. It's what happens when you take a little child who has uh, disobeyed you and you want to talk to them and you get down on their level, you bring your face down to their level where their face is and you say, you say, look at me. <laughs> and you can even grab that precious little head in your hands and make it so that their face, their head cannot turn and those little eyes will still do this. See, what, what are they doing? <coughs> They are purposefully not wanting to know what your face is saying. They are willfully remaining ignorant of what your face is communicating. And if you can figure out a way to grab eyeballs without hurting them, let me know. Because then we can pull them in and no, don't do that. But that's what it is. They want to willfully remain ignorant of what your face is going to communicate. That's, that's what's going on. And the reason that unbelievers have that kind of deeply ingrained ignorance is because of their hardness of their hearts. Okay? That is why they want to remain willfully ignorant of God. Their hearts are hard. That word for hardness there, um, hardness is, means to be dull. It means to be insensible. It can't sense. It can't be penetrated so as to feel or be moved from its current status or position or condition. It's petrified. It won't move. Now, let's walk backwards from the end of verse 18 up through it back into verse 17. 
All right. So this hardness of heart, that is the ultimate cause for why they are so deeply ingrained in willful ignorance of God. Now, go a little bit further towards the beginning of verse 18. And that is the reason why, that is the cause for why they are excluded from the life of God. The cause for them being alienated from the life of God is that they, they, they're ignorant in this willful way. And then that is the description, that being excluded from the life of God, that's the description of what it means to have a reasoning process that has been flooded with spiritual darkness. That's, that's what it means to be darkened in their understanding. And that is why the unbeliever's mind has failed him. It is futile. And it has led him to a sinful life, a sinful walk. You can't live that way. How can a Christian live that way? If everything is true that has been said in the first three chapters of Ephesians, that you've been united with Christ even though you were dead, you've been united with Christ in his, in his, in his, uh, at the cross, you've been raised up with him, you've been given a new status, a new position, you've just been saved by grace, and now there's new, new works that God has given to you to walk in, to live in. If this is the case, how on earth could you have hardness of heart that is the cause of your deeply grained ignorance. See, it doesn't even make sense. These are mutually exclusive categories. They're mutually exclusive people. So you can't live like they do anymore. That's Paul's argument in in chapter 4. So the heart of man is just this way in chapter 4, verse 18. uh, Because of Adam, because of sin. But we won't turn to Hebrews 3 um, and and 4 there, but those, just so you know, those are the where the the writer of Hebrews is quoting the Old Testament and he's saying, um, therefore, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Well, we came into the world with these kinds of hardened hearts. But evidently, what we learn from Scripture is that we can also participate in further hardening of our own hearts. And that's what the writer of Hebrews says. Don't do that. Don't further harden your hearts. God warns to not be a participate, uh, participant in that. All right, so what keeps the sinner from God is hardness of heart. That's a troubling truth. Number two, whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not belief. Whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root in the heart, not unbelief. So the word you want to fill in there is naturally. Let's go back to Luke 24. These are passages that we've all looked at before. Um, Luke 24, verse 25. You know the setting. Um, Jesus has died. He is now raised from the dead. The disciples are, meet, are, are gathered together in Jerusalem. They're hiding. But there are two disciples who are on the road out of Jerusalem heading towards Emmaus. And Jesus pulls up alongside them in their walk. They don't recognize him. And they begin to have a conversation. They can't figure out what has just happened over the last few days of the week. They thought he was the one to be expected, but I don't know, now he's dead. And some people say that they saw him alive. And Jesus says, verse 25, Oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe. Slow of heart to believe. To believe in all that the prophets have spoken. In other words, to be slow of heart to believe the scriptures. The Bible. Was it not necessary for Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And so from those scriptures, he showed them that that was the case. 
Messiah had to suffer. And yet they are men who had hearts that were slow to believe in all that was written. These are disciples of Jesus. These are people who followed Jesus personally. Um, and they had hearts that were not quick to trust the word of God. But rather they were actually, they had hearts that were slow to believe Christ-centered passages of Scripture. Christ-revealing passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. I mean, think about this. Everything that they had just eyewitnessed personally, everything that they had just experienced, a substitute, blood being shed, um, an offering, Messiah, one who claimed to be Messiah, all of what they saw should have validated everything that they read in the Bible. And yet they could not connect the dots. They couldn't. Their hearts were not quick to tie what they just saw to what the scriptures revealed about Messiah. They looked at what just happened to Jesus, and the right response would have been, it happened just like God said it would. It did. And you know why I know that? The scriptures told me it would. And yet they didn't respond that way. Why did they not respond that way? Because there's a problem with the heart level. It is slow to believe. And whenever possible, unbelief will just naturally be present. It will naturally take root in the heart. That's just what happens. And so, wait, now who's talking to these guys? The resurrected Messiah. The resurrected Messiah has to work against their slowness of heart to believe. Um, God raised from the dead is having to work against <clears throat> that natural inclination in the heart to be slow to believe. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 3. In other words, it's not just anybody who's trying to work and help these guys out. It's Messiah who tasted death and death could not hold him in the grave. And he has a life now that none of us have yet experienced, but we eagerly wait for it. And he's the one trying to help overcome their slowness of heart. Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart. What kind of what, what does that kind of heart do? I mean, why is it so? Why, why should we be so careful about that? Well, that kind of heart falls away from the living God. But rather encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened, hardness of heart, right, by the deceitfulness of sin. So evidently, even in the church, <clears throat> the church should labor to root out uh, in itself this natural unfortunate inclination to just not trust the living God. Guys, what does it say? If you do nothing about your heart, what can you expect your heart to do? Slip into what? It's going to gravitate, the center of gravity, if you do nothing in this world, in this mixed condition that we are in, it is going to slip towards unbelief. And I don't mean unbelief um, in, in terms of losing your salvation. I just mean you will not be trusting God as you should. 
Because whenever possible, unbelief will naturally take root. Look, which one of you guys has gone out into your yard, out into your rocks, and planted weeds? Just because, you know, that, that, that's what we always do. We, we have to go out and we have to, you know, dig up weeds every year. And so I have to I actually go plant them to, to do that. At my, none of us have to do it. It just naturally happens. That's the way that it is. You don't have to work at it. It just happens. And that's what will happen in your heart. You would just naturally have the weed of unbelief in your life. Okay? You cannot just do nothing. If you set your heart for cruise control and sit back and pull your leg back and relax, unbelief. Just count on it. It's coming. You slide into disbelief. And that's troubling. Number three, self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Let's go to Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Self-made religion never moves the heart nearer to God. Nearer is the word you're looking to put in the blank there. Let me read down, sorry, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. They said, whoa, whoa, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Okay, so what we are learning is that evidently the Pharisees are the guardians, the keepers of a tradition, um, a body of teaching that comes from the elders, the, 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 the men of old who have led Israel, their predecessors, the Pharisees' predecessors. There's this tradition of elders, and the question is, by the now the, the keepers of this tradition, why do your disciples, okay, why do they break this? Because, and here's the proof, they, they're not washing their hands before they eat. And they've been out in the marketplace. They've been out in the world. They've come up against other things that Gentiles have touched. And, and we are Pharisees. Our very name means separation. That's what Pharisee means. We're the separate ones. And we have a whole body of teaching that helps us continue to be the separate ones. And your disciples don't care about that. And Jesus does what he often does in the Gospels. He does not answer their question. Instead, he asks them a question. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? I love this. You know what this reveals? Is that it reveals the worldview of the Pharisees. The, the, the worldview of the, of the Pharisees is that the center of gravity of everything is them and their tradition. They're looking out through their lens of all that they teach the, the, the people around them. And it's like everything has to answer to them and to their teaching. And, and Jesus says, we're going to just do a little worldview correction here. Let me ask you a question. Here's the way it really is. Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? No, it's actually this way. The center of gravity is God's commands. And why are you breaking them so that you can do your tradition? That's just a massive uh, correction for them. And Jesus offers evidence. Here's God's commands. Honor your father and mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. That's pretty serious. 
But here's what you Pharisees say. No, no, no. Here's what actually our tradition says. And they came up with this whole law. Whoever says to his father or mother, you know, whatever dad I have that I would be able to help you with, it's actually been given to God. And I can't give it to you. And therefore, I can't honor you in this way. And, and what they had done, you know, is that um, they, they had set it up where even if as a son you actually had in your possession maybe something that your parents needed, I mean, and I'm not talking like a superficial need, I mean like they really need it. And, and you as a son had it, what the Pharisees did, because the Pharisees were lovers of money, the Pharisees said, um, yeah, I have it, but I can't give it to you. You know why? Uh, because I've actually devoted it to God. And I'm, gonna, I'm giving it to God. And so I would love to be able to give it to you, but I, what, I've, what I've devoted to God, I can't give to you. I mean, that's very, very sly. And so that was their set of tradition that they set up, and it kept them from obeying God's command. And he says in verse 6, By this you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Rightly, Isaiah was right about you guys. This people honors me with their lips. Because that comes off very spiritual. (laughs) Dad, I'm giving this to God. I can't give it to you, I'm sorry. That sounds very religious. But... Their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Um, Think about this. Maybe they're thinking that um, God will see their set of rules, their teaching, their good deeds, and he might actually be moved to set aside his. That's what they're hoping their parents will do. Dad, I know what God's commandments say, but here's why I can't do what God's commandments say, because of my commandments. Um, Dad, will you be persuaded by that, Dad? Dad, put the rock down. Don't throw it at me. Be persuaded by my commands. And so really what they're saying is, God, we are expecting you to do the same. Be persuaded by my confident, innovative plan. They appear very religious, but God's assessment of them is that even though they appear religious, their hearts are far from them. Okay, so now I want to walk through the relationship of these three um, truths, these troubling truths. Hardness of heart keeps the sinner from God, right? That's what we saw. And to put it another way, that heart will always fall into unbelief naturally. Like an ice cube at the top of the slide in August. There's only one direction it's going. It never slides up, it always slides down, and it's vapor by the time it hits the bottom. But suppose it crosses the mind of that person with that kind of a heart. Suppose it crosses their mind that I need to be religious. What kind of religion does that kind of heart come up with? That religious expression, the sinner on his own, apart from God, he wants God to accept. He comes up with his own self-made religion, and he wants God to accept his religion 
over God's commands. And that kind of a heart, that even when it thinks to be religious, that kind of heart is never open to God. That kind of heart is never open to God. And so the question would come if, I mean, these are just three passages of troubling truths on the heart. If that's the case, if these three truths are indeed true, what, where on earth is, is the sinner's hope? Where, where is your hope? Where is my hope? If that's my heart that is hard and it keeps me from God and my heart just constantly falls towards unbelief, Trying to make a, a three-legged stool with only two legs stand up. It just constantly falls. You can't get it to stay up. It always falls to unbelief. And then even when I do think about, well, I, I need to do something religious, I come up with something that is a massive offense to God. Where's my hope? I mean, it should be very clear that you cannot look anywhere inside you for hope. You can't. I can't. We have to look outside of our own hearts for something to happen so that something will change at the heart level, which brings us to the comforting truths for my heart, and that just brings us to the gospel, right? <laughs> what God did in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, is he overcame my hardness of heart and your hardness of heart. And he overcame my propensity always to disbelieve God. He had to overcome that. I couldn't overcome that. I was enslaved to that. And he had to come and he had to work in such a way to convince me that all of my righteous deeds are like a filthy garment before him. God in the gospel overcomes all of that. God in, in the death of his son and the shed blood of his son at the cross overcomes all of that in me and in you. And here are the comforting truths. Number one, God opens hearts to respond to the gospel. Opens. That's the word you want to put in your blank. Go to Acts chapter 16. Paul and his team are in Philippi. And on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside, verse 13. They were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And Luke says, we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. And a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, she's a Gentile who had come to trust in the God of Israel, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. What kinds of things did Paul speak? Well, we know he spoke of uh, what the scripture said. Messiah was crucified, Messiah was buried, and Messiah was raised from the dead. That's what the scripture spoke and the Lord opened her heart to respond to those things. Um, and that should make your heart rejoice. That God does this. God does this. Because we would have no confidence that our hearts would ever overcome, want to walk away from our own self-made religion. We should have no confidence anywhere that our hearts will somehow overcome our own proclivity to disbelief. We should have no confidence that our hearts will somehow make themselves soft. Mm toward God. So guys, I just want you to rejoice in the God of the gospel who does this. This is what he does. He opens hearts. Number two, God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. Enlightens. That's the word you want. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. 
I love this. You're going to get this in a major dose at some point in the um, Genesis series. There are some awesome New Testament passages that draw on creation. I'll give you a sneak peek this morning. Okay. God enlightens dark hearts to know Christ. I should say Paul would give you a sneak peek. Look at verse 5. Paul says, ah, we got to back up to verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. So now he's going to describe those who are perishing. It's those uh, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Okay, so why can't they see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ? Well, because their minds are futile. There's willful ignorance in them. Their hearts, they're excluded from God. It's a similar description of what Paul gave in Ephesians 4. Their minds are full of unbelief. And Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And then this is the verse. That for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, wait a minute. When did God say light shall shine out of darkness? Genesis 1. There was no light. It was only dark. And God made light in the midst of the darkness. And darkness was vanquished. It's gone. And that God, who had that kind of light power is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light that we need. Which means if he had to shine into our hearts to give the light, that means what about our hearts? They were dark, just like we've already seen. And he shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, the kind of light power that is needed to do that is not a flashlight, but it's God's creative power. It's not even the light of the sun, a big, huge ball of flame that you can't get anywhere near that would vaporize you. Um, it takes God, God light, to do this. What does that tell you about how bad it is in the human heart? This is devastating. That's a formidable darkness that is in the human heart. That only God's creator light power could overcome it so that we might have the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Wow. So God creates and he makes light. And later on in his Bible he says, um, that power I used for that light back then it's illustrative because sin is a lot darker than the physical darkness and it takes my power to overcome that spiritual darkness guys rejoice in the God of the gospel who not only opens hearts he enlightens them with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ number three God cleanses hearts through faith God cleanses hearts through faith. So God opens hearts, he enlightens hearts with his light power, and God cleanses hearts through faith. Let's go back to Acts 15. 
The whole trouble comes about uh, in the early church because of Pharisees. They just won't go away. And some of them believed, quote unquote. Maybe it's genuine belief and they're just still confused. Maybe it's not. I don't know. And they stood up in verse 5 and they said, It's necessary to circumcise the Gentiles to direct them to observe the law of Moses. And the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there, there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. That was Cornelius, right? This is before Paul was even saved. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, the Gentiles, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews who believe, and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way also they are. He cleansed their hearts by faith. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew. It doesn't matter if you are a Gentile. The heart is filthy. And it is in need of cleansing. And it says here that God is the one who cleanses the hearts by faith. There is no self-cleansing that God calls for. He doesn't give you a little recipe and say, if you do this yourself, you will cleanse your own heart. The way that we are involved is by faith, but the very act of faith is a looking away from yourself. That's what faith is. Faith is, um, I will no longer trust me. I will look away from myself and I will cast everything that I know of myself on everything that I know of God. The way that Jonathan Edwards described what faith is, he said, it's venturing your all on Christ. It's casting everything of yourself on Christ. That is not a work that you do. Venturing your all on Christ is is Jonathan Edwards. That's the way he described faith. Um, I've heard it said another way. um, It's giving all that you know of yourself to all that you know of God. And that then becomes a never-ending faith. Because you are always going to be discovering more of what? Who you are and the depths of what you are. And you're always going, you better match that with what you learn about God, guys. You better shepherd your heart to the Word of God to meet God, to know Him. Because you're going to need to discover how much bigger He is than what you are. And you need to continue to cast yourself upon Him. Um, So, as long as you remain, listen, think about this. Think about what we just learned. As long as you remain in a condition where you are willing to look to yourself in hardness of heart, uh, where you will be willing to not trust in God, how can you trust God? How can you cleanse your heart by faith when you are constantly falling towards disbelief? Um, As long as you remain in that kind of a condition, you're never going to trust God and you will remain filthy before him at the heart level. So this requires a work of God. He needs to open the heart, he needs to enlighten the heart, and he will cleanse the heart through faith. He he cleanses it through that which your heart cannot do on its own. Your heart on its own will only fall towards disbelief, but there has to be belief in the heart. So how's it going to get there? It can't be you. It can't be me. 
God must do it. <clears throat> Rejoice in what God does, guys, in the gospel. Number four, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take four and five, and I want you to switch them. It'll make more sense logically in the flow of what God does in salvation. So let's actually go to number five, which is the Romans 6 passage. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Romans 6. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. Romans 6, verse 17. Paul says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, what a great description of everything we just saw. What a great description of hardness of heart, slowness to believe, and no, what not. I will be religious, but I'm going to come up with my own religion that will make you, God, have to walk away from your commands and try to accept mine. What better way to describe that than you are a slave of sin? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. God frees the heart from sin to become obedient. When God saves the sinner, what are we finding so far at what we've looked at here? When God saves the sinner, the first place that he goes to work on in the sinner is the heart. Obviously, he opens it, he enlightens it, but he also frees the heart because that is where bondage to sin exists. Your bondage to sin is not a superficial condition you can take care of by applying a cream to it. Now, it's a heart matter that takes the blood of his son being applied there by the Holy Spirit to be free from the bondage that takes place there. Hardness of heart is there. Slowness to believe is there. Quickness to establish yourself in your own self-made religion exists there. That's bondage to sin. How does that get broken? Well, it's by the grace of God that it gets broken. That your heart is able somehow, as it is a slave to sin, it only knows one master's voice. It knows the voice of the master's sin. Something has to happen where all of a sudden your heart can hear another voice speak. Another master, another Lord. That comes when God opens, he shines the light on your heart, and he frees your heart. I, because you know this, you used to be able to only hear sin's voice commanding you, and you did everything it said. And even when you didn't do what one sin might be commanding you to do, you were paying attention to another sin in rebelling against that sin. There was nothing good in not doing the one sin. There was only a sinful motive for not doing the sin. Because that's all you can do. Do you understand? But by God's grace, he switched our heart's allegiance he opened the heart, he enlightens the heart, he cleanses the heart, and we find all of a sudden now that there is obedience from the heart there. Obedience from the heart. And what is an obedience to? Look at verse 17. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Well, what, what is that? Well, I think it's like the book of Romans. It's what Paul's teaching them. Right? 
It's gospel theology. It's gospel teaching. Um, I'm not going to go very far down this little rabbit trail, but I'll, we'll take one step off the road for a moment. I think this is a huge verse in helping people understand that you're not under Mosaic law. This would have been a perfect opportunity for Paul to say, you became obedient from the heart to the... And he didn't say that. In fact, he says, he didn't even say to the word. Because the word would have, could have been easily understood as, as uh, Old Testament. He didn't say even to the scripture. Now, I'm not saying that Paul is not saying to not be obedient to the word of the scripture, but he is using a phrase here that he doesn't use really anywhere else very often. Uh, to that form of teaching to which you are committed. Well, what is that? That's the doctrine that the apostles have been given to be teaching to the church. And that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to Old Testament scripture. We do. But we are obedient from the heart. Our obedience, we are being regulated under a new set of commands. Are we not? In Christ. And Paul is the one who's delivering them. All right, let's get back on the road from that rabbit trail. All right, so God frees the heart. Now, I love this. Look how it ends here. That form of teaching to which you were committed. Here's what I often do, guys. I think about this. Here's the way I falsely view my obedience. That that form of teaching gets put in my hands and I bring it to me and I need to obey it. And what this actually says is that, no, you are put in God's hands and he commits you to the teaching, the New Testament gospel teaching. What's the difference? It's a subtle one, but it's a very important one. I view myself, if I think that um, the teaching was committed to me, I feel bigger than the teaching. And I feel like obedience is, is that I've got obedience by the hand. And what Paul is saying is, no, obedience has you by the heart. Okay? Obedience has me by the heart. I have been brought to God, to his teaching in Paul through the New Testament here. I've been brought and I am committed to it. He commits me to it. It's bigger than me. small ones obeying something much bigger. Um, we're not big grown-up boys of obedience trying to hold some laws in our, our hand. Uh, obedience has us by the heart. So Now let's do number four, which is now number five. Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Christ makes himself at home. Let's go to Ephesians 3. This is Paul's prayer. It's his second prayer in the letter. His first one's in Ephesians 1. The second prayer is in Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, and from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power 
through his spirit in the inner man. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and granted in love would be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ, etc. So Paul prays that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Guys, this is beyond conversion, this talking about and praying for Christ to dwell in your hearts. He's not praying that they'll get saved. Do you understand? You have to think about where it sits in the letter. Uh, There's already been union with Christ in chapter 2. And Paul is talking about a post-conversion reality. Uh, This is not the original indwelling of Christ at conversion. We're not to pray that that would occur. It already has. We are to pray rather for a richer, deeper, practical indwelling of Jesus Christ in the heart. The the verb there that he may dwell in verse 17 is actually an intensified word for dwelling. It's not um, it's not a superficial dwelling. It's not a temporary dwelling. It's not the pitching of a tent to be there for a while. This is an intensified, settled down ain't going anywhere kind of dwells. Let me give an example of how this word is used in another passage. Go to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, um, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness, the fullness of deity, to dwell in him. Now, God's godness is going to be in Jesus, and it's making God very pleased. Um, what kind of a, in what manner is it in Jesus? Is it, has it pulled up and staying there like you pull up to a hotel and stay in the room? You dwell there? Is it pitching a tent? No, it is, it is, uh, wow, this is, God's godness is there for good. Serious dwelling. Go over to chapter 2, verse 9, the same thing is said. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. How at home is God's godness in Jesus? That's a perfect fit. It ain't going anywhere, right? Mark. Yeah, um, that's a, a Philippians 2 idea. Um, I'll tell you what, if we have time afterwards and you guys want to, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll expand on that. Because I think there's... Um, I think some of the translations have not been helpful in Philippians 2, and I think that it's, it's uh, sometimes a common thought that what Christ did in going to the cross is he set something of godness aside. Um, and I'm not saying that's what you're saying. But it's, it's a, it'd be an important thing for us to think about if we, if we have some time at the end. Maybe we can talk about what exactly is being said in Philippians 2. Uh, in what sense, what did Christ empty himself of? Um, and we'll talk about that. Um, so back to Ephesians 3. Um, 
in, in the same kind of manner in, in which God's godness is at home in Jesus, what Paul is praying for here is that Christ would be as at home in us as God's godness is in Christ. God's godness is going nowhere in Christ. To stay there, loves to be there. The Father is pleased that it is that way. Paul is asking for the same kind of experience that we would have after conversion that Christ would dwell therein. So, guys, Christ dwells in you positionally. He does. If you are in Christ, he dwells in you positionally. But the question that Ephesians 3 raises is what kind of residence are you for Jesus Christ? What kind of residence are you for Jesus Christ? Are you more like a hotel that he feels comfortable in for a while? Or are you a place where he feels very at home? Yeah, that's, that's probably like the union uh, that's going to be formed, um, you know, after Pentecost, I think. And, and, what, and I still think what, what Paul is getting after in Ephesians 3 is, is even beyond that. It's not, it's not the union of Christ that you even see in Ephesians 2 of making Jew and Gentile one body. But this is personally speaking for you that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith that you would experientially be rooted and grounded in love. You would know these things. That's Paul's experience for you. This is the this is the ongoing sanctification process of life where Christ dwells in you. You are a residence that He loves to dwell in. Now think about this, guys. What's going to help you be able to do that? It's verse 16 of Ephesians 3. That's why Paul is praying that God would grant you to be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> In the inner man. This requires divine strength from the Spirit in your inner man to make you such that Christ would want to dwell there, really dwell there, um, really feel at home in your heart. Um, Christ makes himself at home in hearts by faith. Um, salvation is by grace through faith. And this continues on also by faith as well in the life of the Christian. Lastly, number six, Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. Christ establishes hearts without blame in holiness. Establishes is your key word. Let's go to uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 11 to 13 are a, a, a quick prayer that Paul prays after talking to the Thessalonians about um, how, why he sent Timothy to them when he couldn't get to them. And he says in verse 11 of 1 uh, Thessalonians 3, he says, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame, 
in holiness, in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. All right, so here's what he's saying. The prayer is that the Lord may increase you, uh, cause you to increase and abandon love. Why? So that he may actually establish your heart, strengthen them, stabilize them, make them firm. And then he's going to describe what he means by that. Uh, what he means by that, let's talk about it negatively. No blame in that one. He's going to do it without blame. When he does this kind of establishing work, nobody will be able to walk up and go, I could blame you for that. I could blame you for that. I could blame you for that. It's going to be without blame. Let's talk about it positively. It's in holiness. When Christ does this kind of establishing work in the life of a believer, uh, the only thing that you can come up and see and observe is, wow, separated to God, consecrated, holy. Well, where is this going to be? Uh, It's going to be before our God and Father. Wow. So this is, who's the audience that this is before? It's just one audience. Remember, it's God. God the Father. No blame found in His presence, only holiness found in His presence in that established heart that Christ is establishing. Well, when is this going to take place? At the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. In other words, it hasn't happened yet. But he is coming, and when he comes, he is going to do this, make sure that he's even working now to make sure that we are established for that day. But when he comes, we will then be ushered into the presence of God. And we will find ourselves without blame, holy, find ourselves before God the Father, and we'll be with all his saints, hearts established. So this looks forward to glorification. It's tied to Christ's presence. So think about this. From conversion to glorification, God is active at our heart's level. He is powerful within us at the heart level. From conversion all the way to glorification, God is paying very close attention to my heart and to yours. Do you notice how each one of these statements is worded? God opens. God cleanses, or God enlightens. God cleanses. Christ makes himself at home. God frees. Christ establishes. How does scripture present the salvation work of God at the heart? But the only thing he says for us is don't harden your heart. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite a contrast. So then, guys, the the response. What what, what should be our response? Knowing that God is this active at the heart level from the beginning to the very end, what should be your response personally to God's amazing, personal, powerful work in your heart? It should be one, obviously, of worship. Um, But in no way can you be neglectful of your heart because God is not neglectful of your heart in any way. Come up with a, a, it's a smaller, obviously, it's a human, it's finite response. It can't even begin to parallel God's. But somehow if there could be a human, finite, 
parallel response to what God has done in his work in the heart match it? If God is that concerned from conversion to glorification, you become that concerned from conversion to glorification with your heart. Respond likewise to, in like manner, in the way that you can. What God gives intense attention to, you give intense attention to. Response is to shepherd my heart to God and his word. All right. I just want that to be an encouragement to you guys to think about the uh, Word of God. And Derek has a question. Question for you, yeah. Yeah. Um, number one, one and two, we talked about uh, unbelief that comes and, uh, and the hardness that can set into their hearts. Yeah. Could you, could you talk like, like both of those are either than uh, the believer? Yeah. So could you talk about the response that you have? The relationship between how um, I want to make sure I understand your question before I just run off and answer it. Uh, Obviously, uh, especially the number one is um, hardness of heart towards is is a description in the Gentiles, uh, the unbelievers in Ephesians four, and yet Hebrews three is a, a command given to the church to be careful about hardness of heart. So like we uh, we see ourselves like within weeks, days, however long, um, like this hardening, callous heart towards God. Can you talk about what uh, like what the response would be? How we should be doing that? Because um, like it's um, like yes, we're commanded not to do that. Way. Uh, and we know that God has done this uh, in salvation. It's like yeah, I guess we should have a response towards that, towards seeing it. Yeah. Well, Hebrews 3 is really helpful. Um, and Hebrews 3 calls your personal heart issues, immediately makes them a corporate matter. Okay, we need the body of Christ. Um, the exhortation in Hebrews 3, I just want to read it because I don't want to miss it. Yeah. Right. So it restates that again, right? Less any of these are by the sequence of sin. Yeah. Before that's an encouragement of the Right. That's that's exactly the point. The response should be and you and you watch this. <laughs> when when you when your heart has become is drifting into hardness and it's drifting into a lack of trust, how eager are you to be around brothers? I mean, those things go hand in hand. When I've been that way, um, I'm great to see my wife, but honey, you get to get this close. And no more questions, please. <laughs> um, but this is why fellowship in the body of Christ is so important and not superficial fellowship. And we're not talking about attendance of church. Fellowship, lives connected to one another. It is a safeguard to you because a brother can look on you and go, I can see what you can't see. And I want to talk to you about it in love. 
I want to come and I want to approach you. And, and will you please do that with me? And, and we need to, one of the greatest safeguards for hardness of heart is keep brothers around you. But the kind of brother that you've invited to say, please examine me. There's going to be times I don't want to hear what you say. There's going to be times I'm going to sinfully react to what you say to me. And what I'm asking you to do is to bear with me and push through all that and let's reconcile, let's commit ourselves that we will not part ways over the way I might sinfully react to you or the way you might sinfully approach me. But we are committed to one another and we'll fight for it. Why? What's at stake? You don't want to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Guys, it'll kill you. It'll kill you. It'll ruin you. It'll ruin your marriage. It'll ruin your, your ministry. It'll ruin everything sin will at the heart level. Tom. Um, I, I heard a testimony of uh, a guy that was in an adulterous affair and now uh, he and his wife have been reunited and one of his friends asked him, he said, well, how can you just read the word of God? How do you just disobey? I mean, what were you thinking? He said, oh, he said, I never opened the word of God. He said, no, my God, I never said that in all this time, whatever that time God said, I never opened the word Right. And, and, and that's the other thing. So fellowship, I mean, is a, will keep you there. Um, but as soon as your heart starts growing cold and hardened, I mean, man, the first thing you can do is look at your Bible, uh, your time in the Word of God, and you should, you'll see a direct correlation there as well. So then what would help you to not be that way? That's why the man we talked to, this comes back full circle in the very beginning. What is a spiritual man? A spiritual man goes, oh my goodness, I, I see that I've been slipping and I know what will happen to my heart if I don't come back to the word of God. I have to come back to the word even though I don't feel like it, even though I feel like a hypocrite, even though I feel, it doesn't matter what I feel, I'm coming. God, here I am. See me. You, I know you see me for what I am. It's ugly. It's terrible. Please somehow bring heat, bring light. Do what only you can do again. Um, I think it's interesting yeah, and in particular, especially, what about what the scriptures say? Crucified Messiah, raised from the dead, fulfilled all the promises. That's the gospel. What are you going to do to help your heart? The gospel. Is we talk a lot about shepherding your heart, the whole idea of uh, leading your heart into closeness to God and His Word. Uh, in, in Hebrews um, three twelve, the same passage that we look at the evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. I think it's interesting that it's leading the individual. Uh, yeah, the heart leads yeah. the individual to fall away. You know I, that. I had um, talked with Smed about this the other day. It seems like before you're saved, before God does a work in you, there's this. All right. There's this 
It's a mixed condition. Okay? My heart is who I am. It's my inner reality. It's my what I am. This is the new heart. Now, this is where it's important to understand. The new heart is not perfect. It's, it's not an unmixed condition. It's a mixed condition. Here's my mind, 
here's my hands, here's my ears, here's my mouth, here's... And, and you hand them over as weapons to unrighteousness. That's all you do. And you just got saved. Now, hopefully, progressive sanctification means that you're paying attention now by the grace of God and you have an equipping from God and a power from God and new desires in this new condition to now no longer hand your weapons over to unrighteousness. Now you are fighting to hand your weapons over to righteousness, to God. And so there becomes less and less and less of that, hopefully, progressively in sanctification. In that sense, I think then that becomes a place in which Christ would even be more and more at home all the time. Without affecting your position. Your position never changes. This right here is... um, Justification. Now watch this. Watch how ridiculous this sounds. Guys, you know what you need to do? Every day, you must shepherd your justification. No, that's not what you're doing. You're not shepherding a, 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 a position that has been declared over you by God. You are in a new condition. You are a new creature. And you must, and you have been given responsibility. Why did God do it this way? I don't know. Why didn't he just jump from here over to there? I don't know. It brings him glory for there to be a fight. It brings him glory to smack Satan upside the head every time we say no to sin, no to him, and yes to Christ. He wins one little battle after another, after another, after another, God does. Satan is is pushed down. He is humiliated. He can't win. I don't know why he, he chooses to glorify himself in this way. And so you, you, you're not called to shepherd a, a, a position that God does over you. You are called to shepherd a condition of which you have a part in your sanctification. Um, uh, There's a phrase we, we use that, <coughs> that God can't be in the presence of evil. Well, you don't want to you don't want to say it that way. You want to say, in what sense is it true? Oh, okay, so that in your heart it's not true in that sense, because how could God have come and saved you as an unmixed slave of Satan? That's because He is basing His nearness to you on what He did, and you are just declared righteous. Can we tweet that? Can we what? Uh, can we what? Can we tweet that? Can, you can tweet that one. I put But but he bases his nearness and his dwelling in us on what he did here. If, if he couldn't be near, if, if if Christ couldn't be in the presence of sin, he he would have never come. Exactly. Sanctum. That's about right now. So this is the. You, uh, Constant moving towards that. Okay, Scott. Yeah, as we talk about um, this whole issue of the mixed condition of man after he's been justified and saved, I think it's important that we remember uh, the distinction between the old man and the new man and the appeal of the flesh. That when we were the old man, the flesh appealed to us and we obeyed it every time because we had to. Because it was our master. And when we're the new man, the, the flesh is still there, it still appeals to us, it appeals to me. 
but it is no longer our master. And we're no longer enslaved to God. Our slavery is to Christ as our new master. And so it's helpful for us to remember our mastership as we consider this mixed condition. You might think that old man being an unmixed condition of just rebellion against God Sometimes you'll find yourself, if you're not thinking carefully, thinking that the new man is just a translation to a new, unmixed condition in which there is only obedience. And that is not what the new man in Scripture is described to be. The new man is a mixed condition in which indwelling sin is there, but um, power from God, a new creation, is there. With new desires, right? And so... If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. What old things? Behold, new things have come. Right? There's the responsibility of man, too. I mean, yeah. it's not just a, a ticket that you get. Um, let me give you another. Let's, let's put up here these are positional ideas. Justification. Um, Let's call this one positional sanctification, just to clarify. And then let's call this one progressive sanctification or holiness. The Bible uses the word sanctification in both of these ways in the New Testament um, as an event and as a process. Um, wherever it's event, you have nothing to do. God does. Wherever it's progressive sanctification, in fact, Romans 6, the, the very um, passage we were in, talks about where you, and, and we talked about this in um, that sermon I did on holiness. Verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Now watch this. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, over here, just as you used to, that's all you could do, you presented your the members um, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in only further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in progressive sanctification, progressive holiness, not this Positional one, because that's already yours. God has already set you apart. It's related to justification. It's not the same thing as justification. Justification is merely, merely, a declaration from God over you. You're right. You are right. You did nothing that provoked me to do it. I just declare you right. I also immediately set you apart for me, for my purposes. Once and for all, that will never change. That can't change any more than my declaration of righteousness over you. Now, now that you're sanctified, <coughs> pursue sanctification. Become what you are. Become in practice what you are in position before me. Right? Derek. Uh, two questions. One yep. on the charge. Okay. Another one on what we were talking about a second ago. Uh, or the part one. Okay. Should we be viewing what? Uh, yeah, absolutely. 
for us. Okay. And then for the chart, um, when you were talking about the new man and the identity that the new man has, um, that you said that he is not necessarily going to be, uh, he's not going to be unmixed, um, the new man that we get. Um, that we are, yes, in Christ. Uh, it's not unmixed, it's a mixed condition. Right. What, what, we are, what we are actually given when, uh, when we are just at conversion, what we receive and get from God, um, is that not a, like the identity that we have, or that the, the peace of God that we get, I can't remember the way to put it, is that not just completely unmixed and will always desire obedience? Because um, it, it makes it sound like what, what we get in a new heart and a new man that we get from God is almost tainted. Um, to an ability that it would not actually desire him? Or is it just that the fullness of who we are is not what, that, what we're getting? Yeah. If that makes any sense. God does not give you... <clears throat> make sure I word this rightly. God does not give you something that is part holy and part sinful. God only brings to you what is pleasing to him you when he positionally does whatever he does in you to save you it is pure and it is holy and it is right and it is good and the equipping and the power that comes the indwelling even of the spirit himself within us i mean all of that is only good it's just that god does not choose to completely vanquish the sinful indwelling nature of sin within us yeah and it's not half and half. There's something brand new. You are considered not... You, it's not called a half new man. It's called a new man. It is. It's something new that this wasn't. It's new in that sense. And um, he has put in you what you must have in order to be able to pursue progressive things and to be able to be accepted positionally now. When you get to here at glorification, it all collapses into you are completely through and through everything that God ever promised that you would be. You committed through Christ that you will be. When we see him, we will be like him. First John. Um, I like the ESV. Um, it says because of our limitations. Great word. There's ability, power. Yeah. So, Scott, in the last one, the unmixed glorification, so you're meaning we have Christ completely. Yeah. So, yeah, and there's actually. Um, yeah, elaborate on that a little more. Let's say um, when you. Um, there is a, a body less unmixed condition, and then there will be a. A body of um, unmixed at the resurrection. I want to bring out that distinction too, right? Or when Christ comes and we are translated, if we are alive when He comes, we immediately um, have an unmixed condition that is in a body. Um, that's the ultimate. I think what He's after. I think that's. Also, what is very important about having a kingdom on earth 
that we would actually lift bodies, rain on this earth physically with Christ. We talked about that earlier. Yes, do you, do unbelievers, those who end up falling away, ever have at any point a mixed condition? No. Okay. No. What you have in the church, let's call this the church. Is <laughs> the gospel goes to people like this, right? <clears throat> Preach to sinners. There's only truly in the capital C church the way that God sees it. There's only one way into this church. Right? However, what we know from scripture is that some people do this. Parable of soil. Right? And this is why in letters you also have warnings given to the church. Part of the reason why you have warnings given to the church is because we, you don't know my heart, I don't know yours. And some people look like what they're supposed to look like. I mean, you got the whole parable of wheat and tares. So this is why you need each other. This is why we need each other. We, we bring to one another the gospel all the time. You need to have to graduate from the gospel for this story. Um, the ones who fall away, who fall away and are not a part of the church, they went out from us because so their heart maybe appeared to be mixed, but just because it's deceitful. If Jesus could have a Judas, right. we can have the church. How does God do that? How does that all work out? Don't ask me. I, I don't have. I don't know. But we need exhortations to persevere, and that's part of God's way of keeping us. Right? <laughs> That's the Christian life. 
I'll, I'll bring Smed's um, diagram because it's it's um it's better than this and it it, it shows levels of things that because we, we we started working through this um, about a year ago maybe two and then um, even as the women started doing Wellspring and they were tackling this um, it really pressed us to have to try to okay what is what does the New Testament really say about all of this we want to make sure we're really clear that there's not a um, that we're not missing. Or, or, or miscommunicating and not representing scripture well. So I think if, if you have, what I do is in, in having this kind of in my mind as I'm reading my Bible, I, 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 mean, I try now to slot, you know, this passage right here, where is that? And that's helpful for me to try to understand it. There's some places where I don't, look, can, can, you, can you come up with a diagram that actually is going to represent everything perfect? No, you can't. Every illustration, every diagram falls short. There's going to be places in this where it doesn't, there's going to be scriptures where it's not going to be as, as, as well represented. Um, but it, it, it's at least I still think a, a, an effort that's helpful to strive for. So, anyway, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away, behold, new things have come. What are the old things that pass away? If you go up to verse 15 before that, um, Christ died so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. All I had to do was just live for me. There was no way I could live for anybody else but me. That has gone away. That doesn't mean that I'm not tempted to live selfishly. But I am not under the dominion of an unmixed condition that says live for yourself. That is gone. It's not in the process of going away. It is gone. Now what is in the process of going away? My stupid succumbing to the temptation to continue to be selfish, to live for myself. That will never go away until glorification. But my temptation to live selfishly is not the same thing as when I was dominated and I lived for myself only. Not the same thing. Okay? Amri. Okay, so I was like just trying to sort through the reason uh, some discussion that I had with the when we were going through Ephesians, the new self uh, just in the book is, is really exalted like the new the new work that God has. Um, in chapter four twenty four it says Paul says put on a new and put on a new self. Created uh, after the likeness of God and true righteousness. It makes it at least appears yeah. like that new self is, is, is like is perfect, um, or the new creation that we have become you know, is created after the likeness of God, true righteousness and holiness uh, is not tainted with sin. And, and so I guess it's like God's created this new self. I wouldn't say He's joining it. With the old self. If it is, if, if the new self is, if it seems like it's perfect, then why are there any commands afterwards? Don't lie. <laughs> Don't no, no no falsehood. Speak truth. Don't be angry, but no sin. I mean, it it, it only flows naturally there that it has to, that the new condition is still susceptible to sin. In Ephesians four. Verses like 17 
Uh, no, not, not 17. Uh, verse 20 down to 24. You were taught that Ananias is terrible. If not terrible. Yeah, close to terrible. He is a shit better. There are three twos. And, and Paul says, when I was there, you were not taught Christ this way. I think Paul was talking about conversion language, conversion realities back then. When Paul was with him, they were taught in the gospel to lay aside the old self. You were taught to renew your mind. And you were taught to put on the new self. Now, I think these are events. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how I, how I do. Um, I'll say this is beyond event. Even into um, progress or process. Okay, I think that in the preaching of the gospel, it is completely appropriate, and Paul does it. When th- these are these are other ways of saying repent and believe. Turn away from yourself and entrust yourself to what God will make you. I think, um, and, and part of the way that he even represents it grammatically, he doesn't put on these two right here. He doesn't add tenses where you would be able to say, oh, that was a continual process that you were called to lay aside and listen to. A continual process He chooses the, the tense that doesn't reveal any aspect. He doesn't want to put any, he doesn't want to make any commentary on how it was done. It was just done. On this one, he put a tense. Present tense. You taught to presently, continually, over and over with your mind. So, I think in the preaching of the gospel at conversion, Old self, you were in such agreement with what God did and was doing in your heart that you said, I want to do what you're doing in making me a new creature. I participate in that sense. I'm in agreement. And I'm in such agreement that I want to do this. Because in Scripture, these terms are never used as process things. And I think that the, the grammar in Ephesians 4 allows it to also be, I don't think the translation's done a good job, it appears that it's, it looks like that's what you do, but um, this one he allows to be open to a, a process of re, renewing your minds. And we see that in other places in Scripture. Romans 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So mm-hmm. it's continual transformation of life. Can you read the verse the NAS? NAS says, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, verse 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self. I think the ESV, don't you guys have two? You were taught two, you were taught two, you were taught two. That's better. It represents what's going on there much better. Um, it's Paul saying, look, you were taught to repent. What is repenting? 
It's turning away from what you were in this. You were taught to lay aside the old self. You were taught to entrust yourself to God. Well, what are you entrusting yourself to? A whole new identity. And now, um, you're going to need to keep renewing your mind on this. That will never happen. These are events, and this is a process. Anyway, we have gone way over on that. But um, Anyway, pray, you got the point, back to where we were earlier this morning, the point is, praise God for what he does at the heart level in the gospel. <clears throat> that we, um, that he does for us what we can't do for ourselves at the heart level. And um, we are in a place now where we constantly discipline, where does discipline want to exist, guys? Man, it is this whole thing here. You have to shepherd your heart in, in this mixed condition you are in. Not because you're unsure of your justification. Not because you're unsure that you have been set apart as holy by God in a positional event way. But you shepherd your heart because in light of what he has done to free you from this, you shepherd your heart to make sure you continue to move on in this process. You keep going. You keep going. It pleases him in sanctification to participate. Why did he do it that way? He wanted to do it that way. Would you have done it that way? I don't know what I would have done. It doesn't matter what you or I would have done. This is what he did. And now we're going to obey him. And why do we even want to obey him? Not because we think we might get this. And we don't obey him because we think we might get this. Or we don't even obey him because we think we might get this. We obey him we obey him because we're new. We obey him because he gave us, he made us into a new man. We have a new heart that now has capacity. It has new desires for him. And we obey him simply because we want to. All of the time? Do I ever listen to any other desires that are still in me? Uh-huh, unfortunately. So shut up your heart. Yeah, Nick. Um, Hebrews 10. Uh, yeah. 10 and 14 in particular, for by one offering he was perfected forever, those who are being sanctified. Because all of Hebrews 10 seems to, again, the word for time itself. I don't know what you're saying. Yeah. So, in, in that sense, that's a great passage to show you how um, his, his offering of the cross um, secured. Two sanctifications. His bloodshed makes two sanctifications possible. You are not merely, you're not just relying on the blood of Christ to set you apart as holy before God and to declare you righteous. You are counting on the blood of Christ today to be a holy man. Because by that offering, you are being sanctified. See, you never graduate from the gospel. You never, the gospel never becomes something that, oh yeah, you know what the gospel did for me? The gospel freed me from this and gave me what I now have. And now I guess I move on to other things. I move on to, you know, because, and, and I love the, I love to hear the gospel when it's preached. And whenever I hear it being preached in church, I think, wow, I really hope the unbelievers are listening. Mm-hmm. No. Never. Never. I listen to the gospel because... It's the very root and the power and the force and the hope and the everything of me becoming what I am, even today. So 
that's why you want to set those realities and the gospel before you all of the time. Never leave them. Um, I got saved on a gospel by a gospel that was true. Jesus Christ died for you and he rose from the dead and if you believe in him, you have forgiveness of sin. And once you're saved, only saved. I clung to that. And I believed. And then I realized that the gospel was a little wrong. It took me more than a decade to figure out. By reading and being in a church that actually taught these things. I remember even being in seminary guys and going, I listened to I listened to Lance Quinn one time at Grace Community Church, preach from the pulpit on the, the old man and the new man. And I remember going, I don't think I understand that like I need to. What are you talking about? And that put me on a that terrified me. I wanted to be a pastor. I wanted to be an elder in a church. And I, what do you, what do you, I went on a pursuit of that. And um, boy, you just never leave the gospel. <clears throat> yes, saved you from this. Yeah, and here's the way, and I'll be ever forever grateful for Tim Savage at Camelback Bible Church. He's probably one of the smartest guys um, theologically that I'll ever know personally. Listen to the way we frame the gospel, oftentimes. Come to Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel. Come to Jesus Christ and you will receive forgiveness of sin for what everything you've done. And you will have eternal life with Jesus Christ. We frame the gospel in these two very true, very real ways in which we should never leave these things out of the gospel. And so the one who is being worked on by the Holy Spirit of God says, I am crushed under the weight of everything that I've been. Thank you. And I get to forever be with God and not in hell. Thank you, I believe. What do I do today? Mm-hmm. I've just taught this new believer that the gospel doesn't have anything to do with today. And the New Testament teaches that the gospel has everything to do with today. I have no hope for obedience of life. I will only be frustrated in my obedience if I'm not shepherding my heart to the gospel. I will only be frustrated in it because I'm not recognizing the very power in the gospel to give me strength and equipping to obey. So our gospel needs to be better than that, bigger than that. It needs to match better what scripture is saying. Forgiveness of sin for everything that you've ever done. And you will have eternal life with Jesus Christ. And you will have a newness of life now and the power and equipping. You will be brand new. You will be born again. It needs to include all of this. Because that's what the Bible says the gospel is. Okay? All right, so Christ, let's walk, let's think through this. Uh, God opens the heart. Coming into here, God enlightens the heart. Coming into here, um, God cleanses the heart by faith. Coming into here, um, God frees from sin. Coming into here, but now moving into this, or free from sin, Romans 6, God, uh, Christ makes the, his heart, your, uh, the heart, your, uh, his home. We're talking in here, right? And um, 
he will establish the heart without blame and holiness before our God, our Father, at the coming of Jesus. That's salvation. You are saved. You will be saved. You are being saved. That's how the New Testament puts the gospel and salvation. And you get to read your Bible and go, which one is that? What's, what's Paul talking about? What are, what's Jesus talking about? Right? All right. Let's do this. Let's. Um, we, we are in need of... Um, making sure that we get your homework for today. Do any of you guys, let's just stay together and, and talk about this. Do any of you from your um, qualifications, the deacon one, do any of you guys have any questions or want to share anything that you're looking at from the list of qualifications? In First Tenth 3, it was the one that uh, was from back there. Any one that you're thinking of? Pick two deacon qualifications in which you see evidence of God's grace and growth. Pick two of them that you do not see the growth you desire. Does anybody, anybody find something there that you want to work on? really helpful again like you like you said others may see it and that's where it's good to sit with somebody and, and, and maybe give it to them this is one of the reasons why when we take um, wives through the deacon process with, for their husband that um, obviously they're included because we of our position on deacons wives but even at the elder level we also involve the wife in evaluating her husband because you know, you evaluating yourself, you're going to get, it's not, it's not like you're going to be completely, totally self-deceived. But you're not going to see some things that you can't see. There are some things you won't see be, because, uh, because you might be discouraged and not see some good things that are there uh, that maybe your wife will see. And this is where you can, you know, draw on each other's help for a, uh, to help you evaluate yourself. Anybody else from that assignment? Any one of them that you want to really work on? All of them. All of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think dignity is, a, is one that I hadn't really thought about before and didn't, I guess I didn't really understand the, the weight of it. It's, you know, sort of being flippant with who God is in your mind. I, I've talked of this one with um, you know the young guys in our, our church all the time. My my tendency um, is towards um, 
I can I can I can joke so easily about just about anything and and laugh and make fun and um, be sarcastic and and all that. And um, obviously, with whatever kind of humor or lightness that you're pursuing, it needs to be a, a Christ-centered um, lightness and fun and enjoyment. And I am not claiming to have that figured out by any means. But I, I really, I have to wrestle with that in myself. That, that am I, um, at what times am I doing that, and why am I doing that? Um, I don't think, like we talked about, being dignified is a total, a kind of sobriety that is just intense all the time. It doesn't let anybody else have fun. You know, that's not what it is either. And I don't want to put that on myself that I, I can never laugh, I can never say you know, see the humor in something. But I also see that my, uh, the temptation to quickly run into maybe making light of something that it's not really appropriate to make light of. And dignity runs from that. Um, or being serious in a way that neglects God as the audience. Excellent. Yeah, we just want to appear to be intense to people and uh, having the wrong audience. That, that's that's not dignity. Dignity runs from that, too. That's good. I mean, I was convicted by that as I was praying through these things. Just how often through my day at work I have conversations, serious ones, funny ones, that I, God is just not on my mind. I, I'm not thinking of him as being the, the audience to the words that I'm saying. Yeah. And that's what's really good about the double-tongued one. Yeah, they, they, they really... But my tongue is the double tongue. I forgot my heart. I did it. I huh? forgot it. But the double tongue and the uh, holding to the mystery with the clean conscience. And it's because, like, often we have conversations with people that may involve someone else, and you don't know how far they can go as far as to speak on their wrong because they're not there to hold it. You don't know if they don't have a problem with it or not. It's not something that you wouldn't say otherwise if they weren't there. Hmm. But you just don't know, well, they were a part of this situation too, so can I really disclose their part? You know, I don't have their blessing to do so. Whatever. But uh, my conscience is sometimes I still do. And I know even if you're talking about something funny or a joke when someone else is there and might be at their expense, you, you don't think about it until after. And you wrestle with it in your conscience if, if that was right or not, because you might not have said it or had yeah. such a good time with that joke if they were around. So right. it's like you bend over tongue. And then yeah. when I go back into the word about it, like I'm not always stepping into it with wanting to see God and love him in his word, but sometimes I'm doing it so I can get my reading done or something mm-hmm. like that and have to stop and pray. So like those are the two that I struggle with, but I felt like those could also be positive things that I'm noticing and trying to make improvements on itself. Right. And that's the the beauty of of having your sin pointed out to you, either through your own discovery, self-discovery, or by it from a brother. Because in Christ, the only reason Christ would point out sin to you is because there has to be progress that's being made. And you won't make it unless you see it. He never points out sin because there's judgment coming on the bad side. Um, and we need to have, when we come to one another, or even as we shepherd our own hearts, we need to make sure that we 
have the same attitude and same motive in wanting to, you know, discover sin in my own life. It's not so that I can uh, feel so down or whatever. It's, no, I need to just praise God that you see your sin when you see it, right? But it's hard to say thank you to the one who showed you your sin. Um, so that's good. Thanks for sharing, Damien. Tom. Um, I see the number one as uh, last time we were here we were talking about falling to the ministry or sometimes because we should all be living our lives in a way that we can take somebody alongside and say, hey, mimic me. And um those are perfect qualifications. And I think it should be something that I I I can say that take ownership in. I mean it, good. Praise God for our wives and friends who are close, brothers and sisters in Christ who can have a vantage point into our, our souls that we need. Anybody else? All right. Um, we'll, we'll finish early today. Um, let's do this. If... Um, if you want to, uh, if you're in Scott's group, just make sure Scott gets your homework. Uh, Eric's in my group. You can just bring it over here to Eric. I'm, I'll take Tom's group's homework today. Um, he's, a, he's away on business. And does that cover all the groups? And then Amber, you'll get you guys' homework. Let's make sure we do that. And uh, we need, if possible, in about 10 minutes, if any of you, I sent in the email that if some of you guys can help down at Bonds Hall, which is down the long hall and then over that way on the campus if you can help us uh, maybe move some tables around and set some chairs up around for the dessert tonight for guests who's coming to dinner that would be really helpful and probably if there's, you know, if there's just even three or four or five of us I think we could probably have it done in about 15 minutes um, it'll just be a lot easier and faster so if we can do that that'd be great just hang around uh, but yeah guys thank you for coming let's just pray and let's give thanks to God for our time together. Father in heaven, we do thank you. Um, we're so grateful for what you have done in the gospel. Lord, you troubled us greatly um, in the process of saving us. You troubled us right at the heart level. We saw truths about our hearts that we never discovered on our own, nor would we have ever discovered them on our own if left to ourselves. But you came and you invaded our Rebellion, and you showed us our hearts and you showed us how you, what your disposition was and is towards sin like that. And then, by grace and mercy and great love with which you loved us, you showed us your son and you showed us him being crushed on the cross in our place. And everything changed at the heart level. Everything changed. We are so grateful for what you have done, so grateful for your love for sinners like us. And what we now want to do presently is we want to labor in and under and by the power of your gospel for holiness of life. Would you please help us to do that even just today, just today. And 
Lord, what we also want is we want you in the fullness that we can have you when we are glorified. And we want to be free from these bodies of sin. And we want those two things simultaneous together. Freedom from the body of sin and standing in the presence of our Savior. And so God, we know that you have done all of these things for us and we entrust ourselves to your great promises in the gospel. Thank you for these men. I pray that you'll bless them today and lift them up and give them lots of encouragement in the gospel. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thanks, guys.